This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. It's International Women's Day, and after the last year, safe to say this day has even greater significance than it has in years past. Many women have felt the strain of gender dynamics play out during the pandemic, and women of color have felt the variety of stressors of this moment more than anyone else. Last summer marked the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which our history books tells us granted women the right to vote. But as our next guest points out, the early suffrage and feminist movements found their footing during the time of Jim Crow and of segregation. It also used indigenous social structures as a framework for gender equality in the United States while simultaneously locking out those same indigenous women from being able to exercise their right to vote under the 19th Amendment. As we all strive to open our eyes a little wider and be more intersectional in our understanding of the ways that systemic oppression has worked and continues to work to keep so many people disempowered, it feels like an especially relevant time to explore the ways that the mainstream feminist movement could be doing more. Mickey Kendall is a leading voice on this issue, and she's the author of Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. Mickey Kendall, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So for people who are unfamiliar with your work, let's start with the title of your book, which is one of my favorite things to talk about, how people come up with the names for their books. Uh, Hood Feminism, what do you mean by that? I mean, the feminism that you see in low-income communities, um, I, I'm from the hood. I grew up on the south side of Chicago, but it could be a reservation. It could be the barrio. It could be rural America. But it's the day-to-day lived working feminism of people who don't necessarily have titles or degrees, but they're taking care of themselves, their community, their neighbors, and making sure that everyone has a chance to survive, even if they don't always thrive. Yeah, yeah. And... Affixing the word feminism to that, I, I think, is is an intentionality that's really important because I think when you use that word in much of our culture, this is not what comes to mind for people, the things that you're talking about. People think of feminism in, I think, very narrow ways. Uh, here, you are widening the gaze uh, of that word pretty significantly. Well, I think that that's one of the problems is that when we say that feminism is only for upper middle class, for people who are, you know, going to be girl bosses, that kind of thing, we're really saying that we're willing to leave a lot of women and the people they love behind. And I think feminism owes women more than that. It owes communities more than that. We can't expect people to support a movement that doesn't respond to their needs. Yeah. Yeah. So as I referenced in the open for the segment, there are indigenous roots that were appropriated by white women and used in the suffrage movement. That's something else I think lots of people are really unfamiliar with. Can you can you tell us a little more about that? So the suffragette movement um, is widely regarded to have started in Seneca Falls, New York, at a meeting between a bunch of white women, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, Susan B. Anthony, others. And although Sojourner Truth and a few other women of color were tangentially involved at first and Frederick Douglass was there, 
it's presented as though white women came up with these ideas and then gave them to the rest of America. What actually happened is that they realized that the Haudenosaunee, what um, we would refer to prior to us knowing better as the Iroquois, were those women already had all of these rights. Women in a lot of communities had all of these rights. Hmm. Who didn't have them largely were white European women and obviously enslaved black women. But there was a narrative that somehow feminism was a gift from white women to the world. When in reality, it was white women suddenly discovering that other women, especially low income white women, were already doing a lot of these things by necessity. And and the idea that the 19th Amendment somehow was a cure for gender inequality, of course, was also quite wrong. I mean, it, it, it is passed at a time when other kinds of inequality are are very deeply entrenched uh, in, in our culture and our government. And it doesn't open the door for it doesn't open the, the door for everyone. And that's another thing that I think, you know, as we celebrated the 100th anniversary of it last year, I, I, I think that gets missed by a lot of people that this was not uh, the beginning of suffrage for everybody. Well, and one of the things about that is that one of the arguments for white women's suffrage at the time was that it would help preserve white supremacy. This is what Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others were, were basically arguing, mm-hmm. right? Susan B. Anthony, all of them were saying that their votes would help preserve white supremacy. And they, in fact, objected to the idea that black men might get the vote before that. So then what happens is that they get the vote, they then declare it a win, and they sort of ignore that for Black and Indigenous women and and some Asian women, not only could they not vote, but all of their other rights were still in danger, because as far as they were concerned, they had gotten far enough. Slavery was abolished, white women had the vote, white supremacy is preserved, and the union can continue marching forward. There were some... I think we've lost Mickey Kendall. I did not feel that way. Did we? Oh, no, there you're back. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I, was, I could hear you the whole time. Okay. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, but I was saying that what essentially ends up happening is that we sort of forget, right? We celebrate the 100-year anniversary of women getting the vote, but we don't necessarily talk about which women have gotten the vote at that point and how many groups of women had to wait to the 60s or in the case of indigenous women, to well into the 70s to be able to legally exercise their right to vote. And and we don't really talk about how voting rights are endangered right now, in part because of how white women are voting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Mickey Kendall, who is the author of Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. Uh, We're talking about the ways in which feminism in the early part of the 20th century and at other times has kind of left uh, non-white women out, left their stories out, left their struggles out, uh, and not been as inclusive as we think the word feminism uh, actually is. Uh, if you want to uh, participate in the conversation, give us a call and let us know how you're thinking about International Women's Day this year. How have the events of the last year changed the way you think about solidarity when it comes to all areas of social justice? Are you a woman of color? 
How do you see your role within mainstream feminism? Does it feel accessible or relevant to your life? Or do you feel as though there is uh, some sort of cleave in feminism between uh, women of color and other women. As always, the number here on the phone is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, Mickey, solidarity is a battle cry by the traditional feminist movement, but you know that, um, you know, for white, middle, and upper-class women, uh, it means something really different, and they often fail to show up for women of color or trans women when they need that solidarity the most. I, I, I want you to talk about how that historically has played out, but then tie it into what we're seeing right now. There's a lot of discussion about the role of right, white women in the election of Donald Trump, for instance, uh, the role of uh, white women in maintaining institutions of, of inequality and white supremacy. Uh, take us through that, that division that has existed probably since uh, the beginning in our country. So it can be really mundane things like school board meetings, right? If you think about Ruby Bridges and the people they show throwing things and screaming at her in Little Rock Nine, those were largely white women's faces, mm -hmm. right? Then if we're talking about trans women, um, even frankly disabled women, anyone from a marginalized community, and then, like I said, that can include low income white women, what we've largely seen is higher income white women able to skip right over those problems and thus deciding that those were concerns for someone else to solve or things to get to later, right? Patty Arquette gives that speech where she says, well, where are all of you? We're fighting for you. Why aren't you fighting for us? And everyone says, yay, absolutely. And it's like, well, where are white women fighting for equality for others? Then we fast forward to now to the vote for the fight for 15. And uh, Senator Sinema, I hope I'm saying that name correctly. Uh -huh. Kristen Sinema. We were very quirky. We were very cute as we gave a thumbs down to paying a minimum wage of $15 to people we had just called essential workers. Mm -hmm. We can't say that all of these people are essential workers and we need them to keep the economy going during this pandemic. We need to take care of this. We need to take care of that. And then we're blocking people from accessing education. We're voting against their right to get paid, not even a living wage, but closer to a living wage. We are cheerfully, perkily backing people like Brett Kavanaugh, right? And saying, well, yes, he should be on the Supreme Court. Yes, we should vote for Donald Trump. All of these things are fine because it's gonna be good for me, but it's not good for your neighbors. It's not good for your communities. It's not good even for your children, but you don't wanna face that. I know someone's going to hear me and say, well, not all white women. And it's true, it's not all white women. It's a majority though. That's the way those votes shook out. Yeah. And and I don't know what you do about uh, about that, the, the, those differences in that that division. I mean, in some ways, uh, white women who are um, married to or the daughters of or the sisters of uh, white men in 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 most instances, uh 
their their livelihoods, their existence does benefit from uh, the the uh, the white supremacy that guides our nation. I mean, they would have to turn away from uh, their own benefit in many cases to to align themselves, for instance, with with women of color who, of course, in in most instances are not beneficiaries of those things. I'm not sure how you break through that kind of that kind of difference. What what, what is it that that would would convince uh, white women to 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 turn away, for instance, from something that is uh, so key to their to their own existence? Well, that's actually an interesting take because at, when you go and you look at the numbers, these same white men that they're relying on and supporting in terms of white supremacy largely are the obstacle to them getting ahead. Mm. They're the ones that set up that glass ceiling that you can see through, but it's very difficult to break through. They're the ones most likely to turn on powerful white women and call them names and insist that they are a problem and can't be worked with and they're difficult. So it's not even voting against their own interests. It's them having to think about what their interests actually are and if their interests and their needs are really being met by supporting the system that says you can go so far, but no further. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Mickey Kendall, author of Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. Uh, Give us a call if you want to participate in the conversation. Uh, Tell us how you're thinking about inequality in a gender context on this International Women's Day. Talk about the intersectionality between gender inequality and racial and cultural inequality. How are those things playing out in your world or in your mind? As always, the the numbers here on the phone is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. My guest is Mickey Kendall, author of Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women That a Movement Forgot. We're talking about the ways in which feminism has often excluded non-white women from its provinces and and from the benefits of uh, the things that feminism has achieved, the 19th Amendment for instance, being a key example of that. Uh, we want to hear from you on International Women's Day, what you're thinking about when it comes to gender equality and inequality, what you're thinking about when you think of the ways that gender inequality overlaps with racial inequality and cultural inequality uh, in our country. In the last year, we have had a lot of discussions here on this show and in this country uh, about the ways that inequalities kind of interconnect and perpetuate each other uh, across uh, gender and cultural and racial lines. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. 
try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Mickey, I want to take a little bit of uh, diversion here um, and and talk about something that I saw on your Twitter feed today that I thought was really interesting. Uh, it was a personal story, uh, but it gets to... Uh, it gets to many of the themes that I think uh, you you talk and 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 write about. Um, you talked about an experience you had with your ex husband's mother. Can you share that with our listeners? Sure. Um, the story is no secret. I used to be married to a white guy, and when his mother and I met, it was over the phone initially. So we were both in the military. This is not uncommon for military weddings. His mom asked me what shade of black I was, which was an interesting moment for mm. a host of reasons. She was fishing to figure out if I was dark skinned or light skinned and things of that nature. And it was a very awkward conversation. And at the time, I am sitting there really taken off my square, so to speak, right? I don't know exactly how to respond to this. And I think I said something about, um, well, I wouldn't pass a paper bag test. <laughs> Uh, and so we get off the phone. I talk to him. He makes excuses and, the, and that should have been my red flag. But he basically says, you know, my mom is how she is. This is why I don't talk to her that much. So forth, so on. Then we go ahead, we get married. And to be honest, we really didn't see her very much while we were married. He didn't speak to her often, but I had sent her baby pictures because she asked for them. The only picture of our child that she ever put up was one shortly after he was born before the color came in. So for children of color, a lot of times, even if they're born pretty light, as they age, their skin gets darker. She didn't want the pictures of a toddler Mm. or, well, really that was the end of it, honestly, when she didn't want the pictures of the toddler. We were basically done having a relationship. Wow. And the the, the reason... I wanted you to share that story is I think it does get to this question of inequality and intersectionality. I mean, the the things that we face as African-Americans in this country are so complex and inequality and white supremacy creeps into every corner of our lives. I mean, here you're talking about uh, your child uh, and the family that that child comes from and the way in which that family, um, you know, reacts according to the, the institutions of white supremacy to a member of that of that family. It's something that I just don't think a lot of people who aren't African-American or Latino or indigenous uh, are, are accustomed to experiencing or really understanding because they just don't necessarily know that this is, this is what life looks like if you're African-American in this country. Well, and that's one of the reasons that ultimately the relationship was severed, right? Because I can't completely protect my child from racism outside the family. The least I could do was not put my child in a position where they were supposed to respect or revere someone who would behave negatively towards them Mm. based on their race. And I know that that sounds like a pet, you know, it's very cut and dry, but my ex wasn't a great or present father. And even my ex was, you know, oh, 
okay, well, this is not going to work. So it was never actually a situation where, as far as I was concerned, we had to pretend this was okay. But I think for a lot of people, unfortunately, they're in situations where the family member or members are, you know, a closer relative, someone that the rest of the family insists that they see. There can be a lot of toxic dynamics. We also see this sometimes with uh, transracial adoptees Mm -hmm. as they become adults. Not all, but many in the with stories about family members being racist to them in their own home. And for me personally, I feel like if your home isn't safe, then you have no safe place. And that's a real problem. Yeah. I mean, I think think that's a kind of choice that any parent would make. But but when you have to make that about your own family and your child's own family, I mean, again, the extreme nature of that decision – um, you know, is a reflection of just how deeply ingrained white supremacy and inequality are, that you had to do that. Well, I feel it this way. If you're the kind of person that will hate a baby based on skin color, you're no loss. Mm. Mm. What, always, what, have, what have we lost by, by ousting white supremacy from our day to day, from removing the people who are firm adherence to it? from our life. I mean, really think about the quality of that person and what they bring to your life. How often is it really worth it to have to deal with them if you're not being paid to deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, welcome to the show. Uh, good morning, Stephen. Hey. Uh, just two quick things. I want to uh, mention that the best thing that we could do to jumpstart this economy is to give qualified, high-quality child care to every working woman in this country. Mm. That would speed up everything uh, infinitesimally. And also to mention that uh, this year marks the 100th anniversary of Bessie Coleman getting her pilot's license mm. in France uh, two years before Amelia Earhart got hers and what a, a wonderful example she is to black women and all women everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Jean, uh, really appreciate, uh, the call and, and, and both of those, uh, both of those points, uh, Mickey Kendall, I want to talk a little about this idea of ways that, um, that addressing, you know, uh, inequality uh, and gender-based inequality uh, would d- would help uh, the general sort of uh, population and and society in in much broader ways. And Gene brings up a great example: this idea of you know quality childcare, the availability of quality, affordable childcare that would help a lot of women out, but also would would jumpstart the economy. He's not wrong about that. I mean, the benefits to all of us from something like that would be tremendous. I think we may have lost Mickey Kendall again. Um, we're going to try to get her back on the line. Um, meantime, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. Uh, we're talking about gender inequality here on International Women's Day in a year that we have talked more about inequality and more 
about the ways that uh, inequality overlaps uh, in our society uh, than we have previously. Uh, think about the ways that uh, Black Lives Matter has reminded us, for instance, of gender inequality, but also of the power of gender diversity. All of the women, all of the young women in particular, uh, who have stepped forward to be leaders of BLM here in Detroit and around the country, uh, think of the overlap of their issues uh, being people of color, but then also being uh, women. Um, I think we have Mickey Kendall back with us uh, right now. Are, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Oh, there you I go. I have no idea what just happened. That was weird. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I, I wanted to get you to react to uh, our caller, Gene, and his discussion of uh, child care, qual- you know, quality affordable child care, which, of course, is a gender issue, a, a gender equality issue, but also is an economic issue for for the country. And there are a lot of instances where uh, a, a more equitable approach to things would not just help those who are the victims of discrimination, but would help uh, the, the country more broadly. So I think quality affordable child care is one of those things where I feel like all of America could agree, should agree. Mm-hmm. But then we run into the problem that we don't want to pay child care workers. We charge parents a significant amount for quality child care. Child care workers do not make the money that parents are paying in. A. B, because of how much child care costs without subsidies, in some places, it's more than rent. So people are essentially paying, let's say, $2,000 a month for child care, $1,800 a month for rent. For a lot of people, the math on that boils down to, is it worth going to work? Because I also have low wages, even if I'm not making $15 an hour. Let's say I'm making significantly more. Let's say someone's making $30 an hour. At $30 an hour, those are still onerous numbers Mm. for you to work out. So I think we should subsidize child care. In most other countries, child care does not cost as much as it does in America because the government subsidizes it. Just as we subsidize public schools, we should be subsidizing a version of public child care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a few minutes uh, left here, and, and I want to make sure that I get you to, to address the election of Kamala Harris as uh, as vice president, the first African-American woman, the first Asian-American woman to, to, to reach that office. Uh, there's an awful lot of expectation, I think, uh, that have been that's been put on her um, for, you know, making change. But of course, she's a part of an administration that also uh, has a lot of pressure and, and attention on it for, for the same thing. But talk about the opportunity uh, for her election to, to not just change the conversation, but change action uh, on, on the things that we've been talking about. So I think one of the important things to remember is that as vice president, she can do so much, but she can't do everything. That's right. But this is that, that door being opened a little bit further, right? That idea being pressed into the American consciousness that a truly representational d- democracy would include all of the people, including the marginalized, being in positions of power not going to tell you she's perfect, not going to tell you I'm going to agree with every policy she's ever going to support, because that's unlikely. 
But I am going to say that the step into equity, as she has discussed, does include the people making decisions about what to do with the money and power that we're talking about being the people that's going to impact, not just the same old faces that we've seen for most of American history. If you've never experienced it, how can you respond to it kind Mm -hmm. of thing? Do I think that that means every politician who has the right complexion or the right background will make the right decisions? Obviously not. We're all human, all flawed, all susceptible to all the things that politicians in particular are susceptible to. I'm from Chicago. So we send our governors (laughs) to jail a lot, you know, Um, we need to send more mayors. But I think that we are definitely seeing that that step, right, that first step. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be big enough. It's not going to get everything done. But we have to start somewhere. Progress out of hundreds of years of normalized, legalized oppression is going to probably take more than the 50 years it's been since Jim Crow. Well, sixty now since Jim Crow officially ended. Yeah, yeah. You know the the thing that I keep um, coming back to with Harris's election, and we've only got about a minute left. But you know, it comes just four years after Barack Obama left office, and my prediction after his presidency was that it would be a really long time before we saw another milestone like that because of the backlash. Uh, that that we were going to experience to his having been president. But, you know, again, four years later, you reach another milestone. It's it's the kind of thing that you think maybe is about momentum uh, and momentum over over time. I think it's about momentum and it's about people recognizing that perfect is the enemy of good. Hmm. So we're going to have to do the best we can in each election cycle, right? It's it, the four-year mark and at the midterm mark if we want to see change. It may be too slow. It may not come fast enough for each individual person. But we're starting to realize that we can't allow America to backslide because the backslide is so abrupt and so awful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mickey Kendall, author of Hood Feminism, notes from the women that a movement forgot. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Chad Livengood of Cranes Detroit Business is going to weigh in on why the city of Detroit refused the first shipment of Johnson & Johnson vaccines. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.